We are back. This is yes, never we fade. are back. Let's the go back. FT podcast. I'm your host, Fax. And I want to thank you for joining us and all the support and feedback. Don't forget to subscribe on our YouTube and follow us at Never Fade. NFT, as always, I'm with Wait, why, the Why one, would you follow us, Facts? Why Why would you follow us? Give me give me reason to follow you on YouTube. Why would you follow us on YouTube? Well, I would say this is, you know, a little bit biased, but it's, you know, the best podcast content in Web3 today. Guaranteed. Absolutely not going to waste your time. Getting you to something to think about, to chew on, actionable information. I mean, the list goes on and on. Good. Why do you think people should be tuning in and subscribing? Yeah, you know why? You know why people should subscribe? Because I have group chats. I have iMessages of friends that used to be in the space that still hold assets. I ping them and they're four hours late. They they don't make the moves. They don't make the moves they need to make. They don't pop the coda when the coda needs to be popped. They don't do what they need to do with their collections. You subscribe to Never Fade, you get clips from the jump. You get action items from the jump before they hit. And that's why you need that in your veins. If we could deliver this intravenously, we would. We don't care about the numbers. We don't care about the analytics. We don't care about any of that. If we could drop knowledge to you intravenously, God damn it, I'd do it. That's right. We're mainline we're mainlining dang content out here. And <laughs> we got right. more of that for you today. We got a very interesting episode lined up here. One that kind of hits home for me a little bit in kind of a bad way. But you know what? We're here to like uncover that and look under the hood and see what's changed. And that's the story of Oni Force. Oni. Oni Force. So I want to kind of walk you guys through my story a little bit. First off, first off, before we go into the down bad Av and watch your glass jaw shatter on the floor... Let's give Oni Force a little bit of credit. There was a point in time in August of 21 when they were on the podium. It was, you know, you don't count CryptoPunks in this case because the provenance, they've been there for a while. It was Bake, it was Pixel Vault, and it was Oni Force, the first anime project to drop. It was hot as hell. Take it over. Let's hear the L. It was hot, dude, and I mean, you know what? And and I was there in the thick of it, dude, feeling the FOMO, man. That thing, that thing came out. It started running. That floor started running like you've never seen. You know, it was on the back of some explosive, uh, bullish situations in the NFT space. And then when this particular project hit, I think a lot of people were excited because the artist on Complex, he was making board ape derivatives, like really sick ones, that just the derivative ape art was selling for two or three ETH. And so this collection came out. It was like an anime style. The art just slapped and everybody was pumped up about it. But like what nobody was prepared for was what was going to happen to the floor price. And like my personal story, I got a couple early on there in the secondary around like a half an ETH and they just started running, you know, one ETH, two ETH, three ETH. I like flipped one for six ETH. I flipped another one and I'm already like, I'm up, you know, thousands of dollars. But it was at this point that Logan Paul dropped almost $600,000 on a rare Moody Force. And I mean, the secondary FOMO went 
while. And on the timeline, people were calling for this to be the next Board Ape Yacht Club, the next biggest thing to hit Web3. And sure enough, I ponied up almost 15 ETH, which at the time was over $30,000 to buy one rare Pony Force. And I was excited. You know, I was excited. I was like, man, this is, this is sick art. The community is pumped up about it. Was it strategic or were you bit? Uh, you know what? Honestly, it was FOMO. You know, like I, I had already achieved some profits. And at that point, I was like, you know, what do I do? Do I sit on the sideline and in a hold and see what happens? Or do I snipe this rare Oni with a Jasper doll on its shoulder and a sick mask and, you know, see where this goes? And I just, I just went for it, man. I sniped a rare and I was part of the experience. I was pumped up about it. But then what happened in the pursuing... Hold up, hold up, yeah. hold up. Did you snipe? Did you snipe the rare or did you exit lick yourself? But it did. Can we... Can we be honest to that point? Like, was it a snipe? Did you get a deal on it? Or were you someone's exit lick? The, the funny thing is at the time, <laughs> the mindset was like, wow, look at what I sniped. I got this rare one, you know, for 15 ETH. This is for sure going to be worth 50 ETH. You know, like, yeah. just just doesn't make sense when you look back on it. But that's a big, you know. So, so, it, just, so to go back to the point, you didn't snipe, you bought list. That facts? Yeah, I was someone's ex <laughs> in liquidity for sure. No okay, question okay. about it. Okay. But then what unfolded over the course of the next like few days is what started to become concerning, um, which is that like, you know, I'm poking around the Discord. I'm getting a vibe for what's going on. It's like this anime culture that I wasn't necessarily that familiar with and you know the the weebs and the simps and the discord they were living it up man they were having the top of their life I was trying to understand it and then I see like uh you know JR Artspace post a video himself you know backstage in Vegas with Aoki popping bottles celebrating the W and you didn't know, you didn't know the Aoki curse. The, the Aoki curse wasn't live at the time. That's right. This was like early Aoki curse. And it started to like hit me what was happening here. And I think what was happening was that a network of clubhouse communicators, influencers that were well connected to bigger influencers essentially like got together with a very impressive artist launched this collection it was a lot of hype a lot of big buys driving that hype but then it started to kind of fall into place for me like tetris blocks that like this the this was the the w that they were looking for and I started to get a bad feeling that they didn't have a lot of plans post-drop other than maybe buy Lambos, you know, with our money, which I think is exactly what happened. And I was like, starting to get really worried. Now, what I don't, what I can't explain to you guys, what I cannot explain to you guys is why 
I continued to hold that Oni Force for the next four, four and a half months. And then at the very end of the year, you know, probably like a 2021 tax decision, I let it go for 1.69 Ethereum, $3,500. Hey, you clipped one plus on it. Not bad. So I, I mean, not bad I in the sense the that you, you, you took the L before the year end, you know? So that's, that's, a, that's a W. You, you got hit by the Benihana wash job of the Aoki curse that you didn't know about. Okay. So that's, that's provenance right there. Look, I saw Oni Force come onto the scene and um, I wasn't necessarily bit by the color scheme. It wasn't really my color scheme. I think the art was, was cool, but but I, I the colors weren't really my uh my vibe so much, so I did I did swerve it. Um but I'll tell you what Oniforce did for me that was detrimental. Oniforce set me back on the anime category. I wish I would have bit on Oniforce so that I could have been ready for Azuki. I didn't start learning the anime culture until Azuki was taken off. Three, five, seven. I was like, I'm not gonna chase this thing. I remember getting on a call with uh, Punk9572 and he was like, Azuki's just gonna run, isn't it? And it was like at three. And I was like, yeah, I think it is. Like, there was, like, Azuki art hit really hard for me, but I was held back by Oni. So I'm freaking stoked to talk to Henry. We met him at Snoop's party in LA. Uh, recently purchased by Binance Labs. Fascinating art blog curation beast of the 0809 internet age. Let's get into it, facts. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be talking to the newer CEO. Basically, the rest of that story is that this project kind of got a lot of FUD and went all the way down to like about 0.2 geek floor. At that point, it was acquired and there was like a takeover of some sort. And the person tasked to lead the company goes by Star Lordy on Twitter and he has staged a turnaround and the, the, the project has come a long way since he's taken over. And we're going to talk to him today. We're going to learn more about his experience uh, taking over this project and just like his background and kind of like what to expect. So I'm really excited because it's a really unique perspective that he has. And I think there's a lot to talk about here. So let's go ahead and bring him in. Yo, what's up, everyone? How you do? I'm great. How you all doing? We're doing great, man. We're looking forward to learning more about you, about your journey, and what's going on with Oniforce. So we like to find out kind of people's background a little bit in terms of how they got into crypto and Web3. So how did you find yourself in the Matrix here in Web3? Well, I, I found myself in the Matrix kind of like a lot of people, I think, um, in 
during clubhouse days in 2021. So, um, you know, I knew a little bit about crypto before, but I wasn't smart enough to dive into it. Um, but when uh, NFTs started popping off in clubhouse, I looked into it and that was early, like probably February or March of 2021. And then, um, you know, when I looked into how smart contracts work and stuff, that's what actually got me really, really interested because I've always been interested in artist rights and, and things like that. So when I, when I learned about how smart contracts could protect artists or create perpetual royalties, that sort of stuff, that's when I got really interested and realized that it was definitely um, the future. So that's what got me in. Yeah, which is a fascinating place to jump off with you. Saw a tweet from you, I think it was leading into NFT NYC, that you used to run uh, or be a part of one of the biggest art blogs. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So back when I was in college with a group of friends, we started an art blog called Empty Kingdom. Uh, this was like in 2009 before um, social media had really popped off. Um, in fact, I remember Instagram was just starting to take off and artists were like against it. They're like, oh, why do I get what? Why do I got to do Instagram and stuff like that's how, how early it was, um, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it now. But, uh, you know, it was just a group of friends and we decided to start an art blog just to share our um, taste and interest because we felt like we had really good taste in curating and we would always email each other like, artists that we admired and, you know, spending a lot of time going through blogs and websites looking for art. Um, so I, you know, we decided to start our own site and, you know, long story short, within the first 11 months, we got 1.8 million unique visitors and that was purely organic. Like we didn't even know we were, we just, and that was all on Tumblr. No, it was, uh, we had a Tumblr blog. At, oh, I wonder if we still have that actually. It's we still up. I just, I just pulled oh, it up. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, because our our main site went down, but it was it was we put it on WordPress, and that's what where it really was um, uh, built. But uh, we did have a Tumblr just for fun. But um, and I can vouch, I can vouch, y'all are no bullshit on curating. Just the yo. first, just the first scroll on that Tumblr oh, yeah. fire. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. No, we we were pretty we we're pretty cocky, man, about that. We genuinely thought we had really good taste. Um, and again, this is before social media. So this is literally us on the internet, like going through blogs, finding people, going through tumblers, going down the rabbit hole of links and just always curating what we thought was actually the best art in that time. And, you know, like within two years, we were we had over 20 volunteers around the world. Um, you know, within the third year, we had like we're up to like five million unique visitors a year. We were doing art shows at like Art Basel, um, South by Southwest. We were representing artists like some of the artists that we found off of like their blogs or Tumblr ended up being in like MoMAs and stuff. You know what I mean? Like we were like really, really serious about it. Um, so that's really where I cut my teeth and, and learned how important it is to curate what curation means. But more importantly, um, what it means to grow a community, because you know, even for instance, in the time of Facebook, uh, like we had um, over 60,000 unique uh, or, or organic Facebook fans on our page that, you know, we never even tried to, there were no ads at the time and stuff. It was just literally like 
pure organic everything we did never spent a money on um ads and then and funny enough even even though we um were literally one of the top three art sites in the world um not even once did we run a paid ad on our website um which was kind of why we ended up closing it because we weren't making money <laughs> but, <laughs> but i think it was really about the purity it was about the love of the art love of artists and and so that kind of set me up in a lot of ways for nfts because when again when i discovered smart contracts i was like wow this is like the revolution we had been waiting for forever you know um because being involved in the art industry you realize how it's gate kept and how um certain people decide which artists end up becoming popular and 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 artists really didn't have a lot of protections at the time especially digital artists like we would find so many sick 3d artists or um, digital painters and stuff like that and they were always at the bottom of the barrel in terms of their careers and and how much they could get paid for their work and and stuff so so i think that's what really got me into nfts in the beginning wow so when you take a look at your your past with empty kingdom and where you're at now and we'll get into where you're at now but i'm particularly interested with like coming up from the art scene like you did especially in the 0908 era i mean that was the time when you're just clicking you're literally like we didn't even have google search to find blogs like you had to be you had to put a pretty crafty query together to get those blogs uh surfaced so i remember when uh i remember going down the rabbit hole of blogs particularly within music yeah. Um, and it was really, you know, going to, going to sites that then linked out to other sites on RSS yeah. feeds and yeah. you're clicking, like, it would be like, if you had the attention and the, the passion to go five, five clicks deep, like you're probably scoring on some, some, uh, you know, underground current of, of taste making curation right there. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of almost like a DJ culture a little bit too. It's because yeah, you're either in and you're truly like living that life, like or you're not and you don't understand it. You know, like to to find the people who had the right connections was like the way to find like the best artists. You know, so it's like you would have to spend every day looking. And you know, when we were running it with our volunteers, they would just literally spend all day just clicking through links and like like finding artists and suggesting them. And, and so I think um, there's something to be said about being early in an industry where you have a passion for it. It's like, whether it's music or sneaker culture or whatever, it's like, if you really, really love it, like you got to go down these rabbit holes and, and that's the only way to be like early, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. And your, cur your curation kind of becomes, you know, just a, a human process algo at that point, right? You know, it gets you, you've uh, algamated all this data to understand what you're looking at and what lens you're looking at. You send it to your buddy that you're working with to try to figure out their, you know, their pulse on it. You probably got to a point where, you know, things were coming across your desk and you were like, yeah, check, like, check mark, that's good. Send it off to your buddy and they checked it and you just knew it was a banger. Oh, yeah. Like we I mean, we were getting emails. I mean, it's crazy. I, I got an interview last year with the site. I think the site finally went down last year. But like we're talking like three, four years after not even posting any new content. 
and I got an email from some like art degree student in Italy that wanted to interview me for her thesis because like her and her friends still used that blog to like find art. And you know what we learned is like because our curation was so strong and we would curate across like every type of art form, um, people would use it to make their mood boards. So it's like before Pinterest, right? So like if they were like a professional photographer or like a graphic designer, they would like go through our website. And we had this functionality we built into the website where you could create filters and, and like search based on, you know, types of art and stuff. And so people like professionals were literally using our site to like pitch clients and like create mood boards. And um, so I think the curation part is actually really important, like having taste, having values that you share. Um, it means a lot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Crazy background. Yeah, and it's it sound it sounds like um you saw smart contracts as a way to perpetually, you know, drive revenue to artists. And of course, like we've seen that royalty model kind of like unfortunately take a a path that I don't think at the time we, we saw coming. But can you speak to like a little bit about like how artists traditionally make a living and how smart contracts gave a promise to artists and kind of like now where we're at now with the royalty situation. Can you just kind of shed some thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, historically you had basically three ways of making money. It's either a, you sell it yourself somehow, whether you go to art fairs or when you know, build a website, that sort of stuff. Um, and you could sell your original art, you can make prints, that sort of stuff. It was a lot of work, though, uh, you'd have to become your own entrepreneur, and, and it would be very, very intense. And, you know, you'd have to learn to market and sell and manage customers and stuff. Another way would be through galleries, you know, or other tastemakers, if you're a um, fine artist or something, um, especially physicals, you know, like, um, but the challenge there is that the galleries really decide who gets sold and who gets popular based on, um, you know, uh, a lot of politics, to be honest, and their own personal taste. Is that um, the gatekeeping that you were referring the to? Gatekeeping, you know, it's like a lot of galleries would be friends of friends and, you know, there'd be a lot of great artists that they would leave out because that artist wasn't nice to them at a party or, you know, like there'd be a lot of butt kissing back in the day. Like if you were a fine artist, you'd have to show up at gallery shows all the time, like know the right people, like build a relationship and get a shot. And you'd have to like maybe work through a group show first before you could get a solo. It's a big deal to get like a solo show, you know, that sort of stuff. And then the third way is like the commercial route, you know, which is like you try and get picked up as a freelancer, you know, by by like a brand and stuff. And that was rough for a lot of artists, too, that don't want to do commercial work, that don't don't want to be selling out, that don't want, you know, to Toyota to be having authorship over the type of work they create. And and so back in the days, those are really like the only three ways to make money. And they were all difficult. And they all required a lot of upkeep and maintenance. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you had no control over like the your work in perpetuity, right? Like, for instance, if you're a fine artist, and you sold a, a painting, 
and then you build up your career and that painting becomes more valuable because of your hard work. When that painting gets resold, you never see a penny of it. So let's say you sell that painting for like $5,000 and eventually it's being sold for $100,000. And, you know, even after you die, like let's say a million bucks or something like looking at like Basquiat or something, you only made that 5,000 bucks and then somebody else is going to make like all the profit. And there was not even a question of if that profit would be sent back to the artist. It was just the way it was. Um, and that's really what got me interested into smart contracts is realizing that potentially, you know, your estates could be protected, like your children could be protected, um, that you could do the work, grow your career, and then you could make sure that you could benefit and not just let the resellers benefit. Obviously, now with the whole royalty thing, um, it's difficult. It's it's sad because, you know, artists... Um, I think a lot of people got in the space because it's like they finally saw an opportunity to be respected, to be valued and to be treated fairly. I think artists historically, there's something about being an artist that it's like society expects you to just be poor, <laughs> like it's part of the social contract or something. Like if you're an artist, you should just accept having less than everybody else. But like we look at the society we live in right now, you know, we run on story and art. Like when the pandemic hit, like sports disappeared completely. And what was left like art and storytelling, you know, like we artists have actually a very important place in um, society. Not that sports is important, that sort of stuff. I'm just saying like, I think our brain thrives on, on story and art. Cause even in sports, there's always narratives, right? Like, why are you rooting for a team? Why is this one person like really important to you? Like, like somebody goes up, down, like comes, make a comeback. Like there's always a narrative. And so artists are the ones that help create that social narrative and just keep us entertained. Um, but we get punished for it. So I think, you know, now when you look at these zero royalty type situations, it's very difficult because like the free market, like a, a general capitalist or someone that's just trying to make a buck, like, they don't care about artist rights. <laughs> they don't care about what happens to the artist. Um, and it's a bit of a shame. So I think artists, as per usual in history, are going to have to keep finding ways to innovate, adapting. Um, even like, for instance, with all the AI music stuff, it's like, you know, it's like, do you need Drake to exist anymore? <laughs> like, like, does he even need to be alive? Or can you just have other people making his music um, forever now that there's models for that, right? Like, musicians, I think, get it the hardest. They've always been hit the hardest with, with uh, technology, all the way from, like, Napster. And, and look at what Spotify has done to, to musicians' careers, how difficult it is for them to make money. Um, so I think the challenge is, like, technology... Um, makes everything cheaper and i think the nature of information is to be free um and then the nature of like capitalists or people who care more about money than art is to always want more profit and so artists who um just want to express themselves <laughs> and be paid for that are the ones that get punished the most so i think it's difficult to say where it's going to go because you're right like at that time it was such like an amazing thing and it was such a great moment for artists to win and win big finally. 
none of us really predicted that it would it would go to zero or like you know flirt with that. So um, I do think there will be some sort of correction in the sense that like artists can't make zero. I mean, they're otherwise they're not going to survive, and you do need artists in the space. I think it's going to be going back to a tiny number where it's just enough to support them existing in the space and they're probably not they're gonna have to fight just as usual to build up a profile or a business where they can make like more profits you know like on par with someone who's a celebrity or something like that like if you look at sports again there's a whole ecosystem and a mechanism where it's like if you are a top athlete, it is very clear how you get to make money. Like the, it's it's very clear like what what scale of money you get. Like all baseball players can understand like what the top is, what the bottom is, that sort of stuff. I think with artists, it's still not defined um, because again, we're always being disrupted by technology itself. There's also this inverse with artists when they get to a platform, like an inverse relationship with the platform that they achieve which is which is unique so when you compare it when you when you take a comp of sports and you're a top 10 player that's a platform where all commercialization plugs into you right you get the you get the nike plug you get the adidas plug you get the big sponsor plug the credit card plug like you get your your plug from the big four that you get to you know rep whether you're a nike amex player or you're an adidas mastercard player or whatever it may be, right? You get your little, uh, you get your extensions into the platform and you accept that because that amplifies your reach, that amplifies your uh, income, and you know you still get to play your game. There's constraints to when you step on the court and everything else gets to go silent. But with artists, it's different. If you get to the top and people wanna plug into you, I think we're kinda seeing this with Jack Butcher right now, actually, in the space where Jack Butcher is at the top of his game in this Web3 artist world, and there's highbrow plugs that are trying to plug into that platform and get a little bit of juice of that lightning in the bottle. And it it doesn't, it's not uh, a conduit to his creative process. Do you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's that is an interesting point. Um, there is a what I mean, what you're making me realize is there there are actually a certain type of artist that does have comps, which is like performers, right? Like actors, specifically. I'm thinking, like top actors have certain set royalty rates. Uh, there's a guild that helps them understand what they're gonna get paid. Um, you know, Tom Cruise, Will Smith. Tom Hanks, um, you know, Jim Carrey, like in the 90s, let's say, they're all getting paid 10 to 20 million bucks a pop, you know, for a movie, because that's like how they compared to each other. Um, right, with, because, with guaranteed money, right, before they pop on stage. Plus royalties, yeah. like, like they, and that's because like, there's something about like, and, and I think this is why it ties into sports and that type of art is, um, if humans are entertained in real time, they are willing to pay for that. You know what I mean? Um, if you look at like a painting, it's not real time. So it's kind of like subjective as to like when they should pay for it, what they should pay for it. Um, and then you bring up someone like Jack Butcher. It's it's kind of like with Web3, 
it is actually a real-time thing because like in the moment we're watching people perform this these kind of social experiments with art or like using the technology to create a moment um and then you tie in the idea of provenance and and i think in this space we care a lot about history and like when things are happening being the first of things like um that sort of stuff is kind of creates a entertaining type entertainment type feel um also because it evolves so quickly so it's like we all know like whatever moment we're in now it's not going to be the same moment later so like we're kind of capitalizing each time on that moment you know and so you look at like a jack butcher it's like he's doing such a good job of of jumping on what the zeitgeist is making art and and also again making an interactive experience out of that art and that's why he's creating these opportunities for people. Um, so that is something like with, for, for instance, with Oni Forest that we want to kind of develop is not so much Jack, Jack Butcher, but in the sense of like, how do we turn art and storytelling into monetizable events? So like, kind of like the way that like, yuga has managed to turn gaming into these monetizable events like how can we do that with story and art in web3 as well um and i think yeah jack butcher is a great example of uh from like kind of like a higher art standpoint of like yeah and another thing that jack is working on that ties into what you said with the ai music it's like similar concept with ai art and when it ties back to provenance, that's where NFTs can come in and the original creator can sign that AI production, you know, with their wallet. And he's experimenting that with OPEP and AI. And, you know, we'll see how that goes. Pretty awesome. So that does bring us to this Oni conversation. You know, appreciate the background there and the, and the art discussion. I think our, I think our listeners will appreciate that. Um, I think we are starting to like curate this community of people who want to get deeper into the meaning behind what we're doing here and respect provenance and all of this. So I think that's great. But how does, how do we, uh, how did you get into Oni Force? How did your kind of background intersect with getting into this particular project? Yeah. First of all, I want to say I, I definitely love this conversation. I think you guys are asking great questions. And these things are important to think about because what I learned is the more that you study and focus on what are the first principles of the things that we're dealing with every day, like the better you are at just creating or managing it. Um, so when it, with Oniforce, it, it's a lot of it was luck. Um, I guess you could rewind back to Clubhouse days. I met William Tong on there, um, who's one of my besties. He and I would, I mean, he was a so big, he was he was a he was a bent like you met him on Clubhouse in twenty one and became a best friend from there. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, through because of NFTs, we weren't best friends on Clubhouse, but we were we were cool. Like he he was a bigger influencer on that platform. Um, I was not really known that well, but I ran my own room and I would show up in rooms sometimes and, and we would, you know, he would always be adding value and just helping and I would try as well. But, um, I think actually the way we got connected, we worked on an Andrew Yang 
thing together. I was doing work for Andrew and helping to promote him. And then um, when we, we were all talking about NFTs at the same time. And then when I decided to go all in, he had already got, gone in deeper before me. And I just asked him like how to get in and he onboarded me and um, he introduced me. I remember the very first NFT I, event it was, I went to was in LA, some party and uh, William introduced me to uh, one of the founders. And at that time I had discovered Oni Force and I immediately fell in love where it was literally my, the, I thought it was the best art. Like I'd never seen, and this is, Actually, if you were around at that time, that was the common thing about Oni Force is like it was the best art PFP. Like, yo, I, I got to stop you for a second because <laughs> Oni Force was the shit. Like, it was, it, dude. It, it was, and it still, it still holds that. And that's the, yeah. that's the great thing about like provenance. Yeah. And at the time in place, like, you know, we had Pixel Vault on uh, just a couple episodes ago. Nice. And at the, at the time, it was, it was, Board Ape, it, I mean, obviously CryptoPunks had its provenance, so I'm not even going to put them sure. in this category. But right. you had you had Board Ape Yacht Club, you had mm. these punks comics that were doing a novel mint pass burn yep. technology, and then you had Oni Force, and Oni Force was the first of its uh, Eastern Hemisphere influence here. Yep. That that was a, was a very distinct tastemaker in the space. Yeah. So. You right. know, for the people that are listening, like I don't, I don't want you to downplay that. Like Oni Force <laughs> was was on the podium. It was crazy. I mean, I just for fun. You're right. I was googling Oni Force and looking at the articles about it in August 2021 was crazy. I mean, they they innovated a lot of stuff. They were literally the first anime PFP project. They were the first sideways PFP. They were the first left facing. If you want to get more like specific about it like they created the the whitelist you know when it was called the whitelist because they were trying to figure out how to save on gas wars you know and um li even little details like they were the first project to put lo-fi music into the discord right like there was all these things and then the storytelling so it it was literally actually actually yeah. Oni Force pushed Bake on the Lo-Fi radio. It was on their roadmap to put out a Lo-Fi radio. Oni uh -huh. Force put it in the website or in the Discord, uh -huh. and then uh, Board Eight put out that that Lo-Fi YouTube yeah. YouTube account. So there's there's a Lo-Fi battle there that no one knows about. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was literally supposed to be the next next Bake. Like it was that big i mean we had snoop dog bought in gary v was in the discord all the time uh obviously logan paul bought a oni for like 600k or something like that like like it was it was popping off you know steve aoki like and so um so at the time i was still more on the outside because i wasn't really like i missed out i had missed out on minting like a lot of stuff because i was like working and and stuff and and i wasn't checked in and so um, but when I saw the art, I fell in love with it, met the founder, um, just started partying, you know, and then when I heard through the grapevine, they were having trouble, I offered to volunteer, um, not knowing any of the background drama or what happened, which is probably a good thing. Uh, and then William, again, he asked me to actually manage the project. 
initially I thought I was just going to like show up on the weekend or like give some marketing advice or something like that. And, um, they and then he was just like, can you be the project manager? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a dream come true because, you know, I want to really jump into web three and build my own name and like, you know, being able to do it off the rip with like literally my favorite project, like that sounded amazing. Right. Yeah. So take us back to that moment when they ask you to, to manage that project, what is, what are like the top three perks that are kind of running through your mind? And perks is the wrong word. Yeah, there's benefits, there's like the motivation behind it. I think. Yeah, yeah, the top three motivation. Well, actually, the first one, um, the reason why I offered to help is because um, so I was friends with Strawberry first, and when I met him, they were at the top. Uh, you know, he was CEO, I think. Um, and I was only observing from the outside, right? So every event I would see him at, he would get like literally like more and more sick, <laughs> like haggard. Like I literally was like watching him turn more pale and like I would like send him text messages like, bro, like get some sleep. Like, how's your health? Like, like you don't look good, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And so that's why I offered to help because I was like, oh, maybe these guys like are just overwhelmed. It's just too much work or something like you're working yourself. Because I know what burnout looks like. right? I've been burned out like before and I've like worked myself to the bone. And so it started. That's why I initially volunteered because I was just like, oh, if you just need help, like I could take something off your hands. Like um like little known fact i actually produced the video for them that when they went to comic-con the first time and that was just me like volunteering like i was just sent out one of my guys to go film and and kind of like try to add some value um and like um so that's why i offered to help when when william asked me to be the project manager i mean you know i mean it was a top project so that seemed like from just a professional portfolio standpoint, that would be huge. Um, also, I just really wanted to get hands-on and really learn what it meant to like run an NFT project. So I was working on my own project that I was gonna getting ready to launch. Um, but I thought, yeah, I'll take whatever. I mean, my whole life, whatever shot I could get, I'm gonna take it, you know? <laughs> so like, I was like, okay, like, let me try this. Um, and, you know, I didn't think much further than that, to be honest. I didn't even ask for money. Like, I literally was working for free for this first two weeks. And then after putting in, like, 100-hour weeks and getting my ass kicked, I was like, I think you guys need to pay me something because this is, like, this is now, like, more than a full-time job and I'm not even able to work on my own project. And, and um, you know, it, the funny part is I was very naive in the beginning. And so I wasn't thinking about the benefits too much. And then when I got in, I realized like, okay, like if we can turn this around, because they had went for perspective for anybody listening, like when I came in, which was right in the beginning of February, 2022, they had gone from like seven ETH to 0.2, like within a stunningly short period of time. So you could imagine how toxic, and it was the first blue chip or not. I think Pudgy was right there too, but it was like one of the first blue chips where it was like to fall that hard and to lose people so much money. I mean, could you imagine like from a 70th floor 
like how much money people were losing like and and so you could imagine how toxic and crazy it was and you know when i first came in like they didn't even know me there was actually really nice people that kind of wanted to give me a chance but in the beginning they were like pretty hardcore like kind of cruel some people like they were i came in and they were making clown face emojis about me immediately like they didn't even know who i was but it's like oh new project manager you're friends with strawberry you must be a piece of shit too you know like that sort of stuff and like you know they're they're and, and that clown you know you're not the first builder to talk about the clown emoji like there's there's something about that clown emoji that hits hits under the skin. Oh yeah, yeah. nobody wants to be. <laughs> it's a clown. like the ultimate insult. You know? Yeah, <laughs> dude, it's it's a it deeps it goes deep to the soul, right? Like, and uh, and like, and mind you, this is literally like my first week where it's like I didn't I didn't even do anything good or bad. <laughs> you know, it's just like I just showed up, and I just it's like you walk in the door, and they immediately start like beating you up and 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 the thing is though the reason why i didn't i didn't um take it too personally um although some of it i did take personally because i was like never experienced that before i'm like what the fuck i'm like <laughs> you want to fight dude like you can't talk to me like that like and then and then like uh but most for the most part i took it in stride because when i had looked in the discord i saw that like um despite all the anger and the hate that was happening, nobody faded the art or the value of the brand or the IP. Like even the most angry person was not saying anything bad about that. They still believed in it. And I could tell, like one person, I forgot who it was, but they said something like, you know, we'll believe it when we see it or something like that, that things could change. And I was like, oh, okay. So you're telling me you will believe it if you see it. So we have to like actually deliver something to you, you know, and and also there was there there were actually really great community members that that were kind and and wanted to support me from the beginning give me a fair shot and so very quickly within the first like 2 months i like really fell in love with the community and i felt like um there were really so many good people that just got burned by bad ownership and um and also just financially i felt a responsibility towards them cuz it's like if people spent what thousands is what does bad ownership mean to you? What does it look like? Bad owner that's a great question. Yeah. Bad ownership, I think, is it's usually about communication in this space. I think um people can come in with good intentions and screw up because they don't know what they're doing and they're not necessarily bad, but they could do a bad job. But I think when you don't value the community, when you don't care what they say, when you don't incorporate the feedback that they're giving you into your actions, when you take people for granted, when you don't pay them for their work, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, when you are not humble, when you think that you're the shit and everybody should just give you what you want because you got rich really quick all of a sudden and, you know, like your, your ego is inflated, like, um, and then when you take most of the money and don't deliver a product, that's probably bad ownership. <laughs> there you go. Good. I don't think you, anybody could put it better than that. So that first couple of months when you were that, actually that, that like in a took position. Me from ego to grifting right there. Just ego to grifter. <laughs> yeah. Grifting 101. Yeah. So the, the first couple of months when you were actually like in a position of authority, star lordy, like what hit the top of your priority list based on what you had learned that had gone wrong? Um, that's a great question. Before I answer that, I do want to say one thing about the owners is that 
from my understanding, they in the beginning they thought of it as an art project, and I heard that even in their early spaces, they said publicly that they were going to split whatever money and go. Like it's, they never in the very beginning said like, oh, we're going to build this big brand and this big company. It's more like they publicly stated that they were just launching it because it's something they wanted to do and they're going to go. And then once it blew up, that's when they started promising and the ego and all that stuff. And so I, I still don't agree with like if you're going to start a company and try to build something like you should probably not take 90 percent of the money. <laughs> But but I'm just I just want to say like it what I I don't want anybody to think that from the beginning that they had an intention of like rugging the project or something like that and also they suffered for a whole year with me as well like they were working um, they were putting in the time while they were also being hated and you know so so I think it's a little different than a hard rug or, or something where it's like somebody goes into it knowing what they're, you know, what they're doing off the bat. So I think a lot of it was like, they didn't intend on it on, on, on starting a big brand. They got an opportunity to, they thought they could do it. And then they found out that they really couldn't. Plus like, to be real, like if five strangers meet on clubhouse and they agree to split the money five ways, once that money comes in, if it changes your life, right? Like if you're like poor and then all of a sudden you have money, like to convince the only way for that money to come back is if all five people agree to like give up that money. And I'm sorry. Yeah, they like not. all five people are coming back to triple down because they all collectively see a broader vision. Right. But you're not going to get five people who were poor before uh, or not, you know, as wealthy. Not everybody was poor, but I'm saying, you know, as an example, like most of them were not rich and it's like, you're not going to get that and give people life-changing money and then ask them to give life-changing money back when that wasn't part of the deal initially. Like that just doesn't have, that's human psychology. You know what I mean? So I I, I don't want to, again, I don't think that was a great from a business standpoint. It still doesn't make them great founders. I just, I just want to say that on the record so that I don't want people to think that these are like bad people that like went in there with bad intentions. You know what I mean? It was just more like, they just were the wrong people to run it after they launched it. And so, um, but anyways, to answer your question, I think, um, you know, I learned this is all ties back to Empty Kingdom, which is like, I learned a lot, like everything I learned was through Empty Kingdom, which was that um, you want to have clear values. You want to communicate those values consistently. And you want to make sure that your actions actually support those values. Right. So like for me, when I first came into the project, I realized that the lack of transparency, the lack of communication, the lack of trust um, was the main reason why it was so toxic, right? It's like if somebody who's responsible for your bags doesn't communicate with you, it just creates a lot of anxiety and fear and doubt. Like, you know, like it, it's it's rough. And so right when I came in, I was like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to establish our values, which is to be honest, to be transparent, and to work really hard, right? And to value the community. Those are the values like from the get go, my first town hall, that's what I said to everyone. Um, and then I looked at the roadmap and I said, okay, you guys promised 
all the way up to a metaverse. Like literally everything the community told you they wanted, you just put it on the roadmap. I was like, we're not building a metaverse. Like we don't have the money or the time or the resources. So let's look at like, what are the core things that were promised early on that we actually can deliver, which were the frames, the second collection, and then the comic book, right? And so when I came in, I just ripped off the Band-Aid and, and was very honest and said to everyone, look, like we can't do all this stuff. It's not going to happen. But what we can do is we're going to do the frames in the comic and we're going to get it done by end of Q1. So I had literally two months to deliver um, these projects, which um, thankfully we actually did on time, which was crazy. I mean, it was like two months of, you know, 100 hours a week of working and, you know, like very, very stressful time. Um because imagine like I'm trying to manage this project, deliver a product. I'm learning on the job about smart contracts, how they work. So it's like having to like make these decisions that could affect the project forever, you know, for for the whole future of the project while you're learning it is very stressful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. L- let me just stop you for a sec to say that like, honesty and transparency it really goes a long way you know and just hearing you transparently explain something it it resonates you know like i was a early uh purchaser of oniforce and like i'd kind of come to this conclusion that okay the people that started this project they were well networked they were able to build hype and they leveraged a really amazing artist and but beyond that, like they didn't really have a clear plan of execution. And, and you've kind of like pretty much validated that and just understanding that, yes, that's what happened. I think it goes a long way, you know, and in this space, like like one example, one anecdote I'll give you in terms of like addressing FUD with transparency and honesty is Frank D. Gods, right? Like D. Gods have been FUDed more than any other project period but they're still out there and they're still succeeding and why is because they learned frank learned over time to not run from the fud but rather to embrace the fud and address it so people have a lot of negative sentiment they have criticism he'll pop up a space he'll be like okay let's talk about this he'll talk through it he'll give some rational explanation and then by the end of the space, everyone's like, ho oh, hum, like, oh, there's not really that much to fight anymore. We understand now the communication solves some of the angst and some of the criticism. So yeah, I think coming out the gate with, with that game plan was definitely excellent. It's a combination also of like, you know, transparently uh, regurgitating and articulating the L's you know, taking the L's on the jaw. And so, and that takes, you know, that's wear and tear on a leader, taking taking L's on the jaw in public all the time. But the reality is, is that if you're invested in a brand, if you're invested in a builder in this space, that you want them taking L's. Like, you want them stretching themselves and taking little L's to build up to big W's. And uh, I just am like, I'm always going to put my stake in the ground behind builders who can, you know, show up and deposit those small L's for the greater good. And I think we're out of space, honestly, you know, post bear market or post, let's call them doldrums of bear market, 
where the people who are around right now, they want to be around. Um, and one of the things you tweeted, Star Lordy, uh, I think at the end of last week that just hit really hard for me and it hit really differently was that you're out in at NFT NYC meeting with, sorry, you're out at NFT NYC prioritizing builders in your community. Like that tweet to me hit really hard as a builder because it told me that like this guy's metrics are dialed. Like his his meeting ratio and impact out there is is really dialed in. It made me really bullish. Can you kind of talk to me about that? Thank you. Yeah, no, I agree with with all of that. Um I mean I mean, by the way, I got to meet Frank finally in person and I he's a fucking great dude man he's a genuinely nice guy like i go by values because values mean intention and you know he's somebody i've been watching observing um you know it's tough in this space because like being a builder um it kind of creates a tension amongst people that don't care about what you're building that only care about their bags <laughs> right so like you take these l's in public which every builder has to i mean you can't build without taking that's like saying an athlete like you're not allowed to lose one single game right or you're not allowed to miss like one like game winning shot you know what i mean like that's ridiculous that's that's not even realistic but i think in a bear market, especially because people's bags are so delicately tied to projects, they kind of overreact to any little mistake or little um, bad thing, and they kind of exacerbate that situation. And so like being a builder, in my mind means like, actually caring about the future of the space, caring about your communities, caring about your project in a long, long term way. So yeah, being a builder means you actually care about your community and the space itself, um, the technology. Um, and so it's like, you have to really invest in the right future, if that makes sense, right? Like if you're only care about pumping people's bags, yeah, like start knock amigos. <laughs> like <laughs> feel free like that's great but like if you actually want to build something that's going to have long lasting returns on people's um you know uh, uh quote investments i have to be careful calling them investments right because they're not securities but uh if you're if you're like if you care about what people do with their eth let's just say that then you have to build for the long term. So that's why like I focus again on people who also care about those things that like actually ask themselves, how are they going to return value now and in the future for people? Um, so I think that's what a builder is, is someone that's actually building. You know? I was just going to ask if it's, if I can, like, you know, the, the word investment was that thrown out there. We're not going to take it out of context, but where does that, put uh binance in this equation as a platform so oh, with the ownership group yeah i see yeah um so for anybody that's listening you know our new ownership group is consists of the ex-cfo of binance plus the binance labs team they broke off and created their own 100 million dollar fund um we are the first nft project they're 
they, they purchased there. We are their flagship company in Web3. Um, they took a look at the landscape and saw that, you know, when it comes to projects that they could acquire um, and that were available to acquire, we had hands down the best opportunity in terms of the art and storytelling and community. I think the community actually created a lot of value for that acquisition because for the community to stick around and be so loyal and like care so much about this brand and IP, um, they also referred to it as a community buyout where like them calculating the potential long-term value of this brand also was informed by the community itself. Because if the community didn't show up, there would be no value, right? Because they'd be like, oh, like nobody actually cares. But so they they are making considerable investments in the sense of their time and resources and network. And, you know, financially, we're still being treated a little bit like a startup for this year in the sense that we need to still perform. We need to take the resources we have and show that what we could do with it. But um, as more and more success comes, like more investment comes and, and from them. And so the main thing is that, uh, you know, we, who is the, the head of OFR um, and was the ex-CFO of Binance, you know, he's putting at least half of his time into this project, which is a lot. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you're talking about somebody running a hundred million dollar fund that has been CFO of two publicly traded companies, you know, like that has literally made CZ like billions of dollars, you know, putting in half of his time into this project that that means a lot. I mean, it also what is yeah. it? What are his core functions? I, I get what a CFO, you know, is typically tasked with, but I don't think any NFT project has that dialed of. I'm confident to say no NFT project has that dialed of a CFO involved. No. I mean, and even Yuga also... doesn't have a a CFO to that level involved. So if you can give yeah. us uh, if you can give us insight into the very first uh nft project with that level of a cfo over the top of it uh that would be appreciated yeah, that's a great question um he, first of all he's more of a business and a builder cfo if that makes sense like he builds businesses it's not just some guy that like counts numbers or or does accounting or that sort of stuff like every company he's been at he was integral to building the brand and the business itself like he's more of a actually a business developer a brand developer than anything yeah slash probably one of the best vendor negotiators you've been in a room with too huh? oh yeah that guy is a beast i mean dude like uh wizard of soho shout out to him refer when we the acquisition happened he referred to the binance labs team as the greatest MA acquisition team in the history of crypto because they've like acquired hundreds of companies you know and so the man is like a master you know like he when he speaks it's like it's like asking you know kobe bryant for basketball advice right like like he can cut to the deepest like most meaningful point he can see through any situation and know exactly how it's going to play out um you know like it's incredible like i agree like there's literally no nft project right now that has that level of leadership so his role is really like as a high level owner is really like 
um, he is a master advisor and he's also, um, I run everything by him. So, you know, I am the CEO, but he could easily be the CEO. You know what I mean? It'd be like, um, almost if there was like another CEO on top of the CEO or something like, like he's like the man, you know, like, and so, um, that was another reason why I decided to stay because, at the time when we were getting through the acquisition, I wasn't sure, depending on who bought it, if I would stick around. And mostly I was leaning towards not sticking around, like just get through the transition and then go because I feel like I always have other things that I could do myself. But as soon as I met him, I was like, man, that would be stupid if I left because I'm going to like, when would I get a chance to learn from someone like that and to have direct access, like, you know, 24 seven to be able to ask any question I want and just level up myself, you know? And so the benefit that he offers isn't just resources and stuff, but it's like anything, any problem or a, like situation you present to him, he will give you the best approach, the best advice, be able to like see around the corner and just cut through the noise and keep you focused on what's important. You know what I mean? So, um, so I think we have a killer team. I mean, we're kind of ready to destroy, <laughs> to be honest. Like, like, like it's kind of scary, actually, how how powerful this team is. And I think um, in the next couple of months, we're going to start seeing that play out um, in the space. I love to hear it, and I'm and and kudos on seeing that opportunity to level up. Yeah, I've I've exited companies before, and going through that M and A process and integrating that company into a broader brand it, i mean it's usually the definition of hell from my personal perspective um so you do like i mean i i, I kind of want to shape what you said a little bit because i think people listening might be like dude he was gonna bounce but if it wasn't for this guy he wouldn't have stayed on it i don't think it's like that i think it's that it's that when you go through that m&a decision and, and you go with a company to be a part of a bigger company, that's a lot of bureaucracy that you have to go through. And, and sometimes you don't get to keep the good parts of what you were a part of through that bureaucracy. Um, is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, with OFR, the transition has been the easiest thing. Once we actually exited the founders, the hard part was getting through the acquisition itself. Um, but... Also, like for perspective, it's like, you know, I'm pretty ambitious and I had already put in like $150,000 of my own money into my own NFT project that I never launched for over a year because of OniForce that I felt like this responsibility to the community. Um, I have other business ideas and things that I want to develop. Um, so it's not like I was just trying to bounce. It was just like, I would stay through whatever time period needed to make sure that it was a clear transition, you know? Um, and uh, depending on if it wasn't OFR, you know, that's where you're right. It could, it was a question mark, like depending on who it was, like I already went through a year of suffering. <laughs> like I, I got other ambitions. Like I'm not trying to like just, go through another period with somebody some ambiguous new team where I'm going to have to like deal with them and and not know if it's going to be a good experience or not but I knew right off the bat that this was like 
the perfect place um, for me to stay and, and to grow. So, um, yo, what it sounds like is like you got bullish on what was happening and the opportunity that was in front of you. I mean, you came yeah. in during the worst time when the people were calling for this project to go to zero. You know, yeah. you dealt with the toxicity, you turned around the communications, you, you know, went through the mud and then look where we're at now. You've more than three X the almost four X the floor price. Things are turning around. The art still slaps. And what <laughs> we're hearing here uh, about the team behind this, look, this is alpha, the ex CFO of Binance that is part of this $100 million fund has gotten behind this particular project because they're bullish on this project and you're working closely with him on the next phases of this. So maybe we can get into like where Oni Force is going from here. You know, how mm -hmm. is this? I know you, you, you're delivering the comic book. You know, how else is the art being leveraged? What can people expect from Oni Force? you know, for the rest of 2023? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, there's been some pressure amongst people we've met for us to define ourselves immediately, um, which is a fair question, right? Because people want to know if we're worth um, putting their, putting eggs into our basket especially considering the past history. Um, but again, going back to the wisdom of Wei, um, he told me in the beginning, it's like, we know what our value is, which is the art and the storytelling. When it comes to like, what space we're going to occupy, we should be careful not to pigeonhole ourselves too early to to allow us a little bit of time to develop it and organically see like where where our true value is for the long term um and i think it took us a couple months but we definitely know now um which you know this is alpha in the sense that we haven't we're getting ready to relaunch in a big way, we're going to be making some really big announcements to who we're adding to the team, to the advisory board. Um, and, and that's where like probably a lot of the official like vision and roadmap, blah, blah, blah is going to come out. But I could say that, you know, when I asked, we like, um, I asked him when we first started working together, I'm like, okay, two, three years from now, where do you see us? Like, what's ideal scenario for you? Because I want to know, like, you know, for me as CEO is like, I have my ideas, right? But it's like, where, where do you think that, like, an optimal situation we're going to be? And he said, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar brand, you know, um, but also we have a potential to be an apex predator, you know, to be a, like a Yuga, you know, where we can actually acquire other other brands and companies and and, and I think the way that we would get to that level is through creating an ultimate like um, fan experience, like platform, like through art and storytelling. So if you think about what Yuga's done, like going all in on gaming and how they've really learned how to monetize it, um, 
you know, through NFTs and community, like we would basically be doing the same with art and storytelling. So turning art and storytelling into monetizable events and follow up with with uh, products and stuff. So it's really like if you're going to say in one sentence, it is actually like a Disney 3.0. You know right? what? I I think I think the Disney line is so underrated. Like I know a lot of people throw that out there, but the yeah. Disney line is so underrated because in the physical world, Disney can't scale like it yes. wants to scale. Like Correct. It, it started with Disneyland and that was a phenomenon and then you do Disney World and then you have Shanghai. And then you have all these resorts, Tokyo, all around the world. When you walk through Disneyland and you look at Disneyland as an IP curator, it's phenomenal. It's Crazy. really, it's phenomenal that they have, you know, rides. I mean, I, I, I do, the Disneyland thing was, was kind of corny when it was first thrown out. But when you inspect it and you realize that, like, attributing two rides to a group of content and having merch come out of that content library and and watching people walk around Disneyland with Minnie Mouse ears it's like that's the metric of Disneyland yeah. how many Minnie Mouse ears are getting put on people that's the if if I ran the park every day I'd be having the Minnie Mouse ears metric in my yeah. face <laughs> you know it's funny you say that because um that's literally like how i started off pitching oni force a year ago and it became corny very quickly because i think in disney is so huge it's like you can't even conceptualize like how to get there and it's just like a, a buzzword or something like that but yeah. i think you know for me what i realized is like you know, I think very deeply about these things, actually, like what is story? I, I realized like a long time ago, story is code for our brain, like our brains, like literally run on story, like that is the code. And so like, you know, we're our personalities are just collections of the stories we've consumed, the environment, our family, like the stories we tell ourselves who we are, like where we're at in life, what our purpose is. It's all a fucking story, man. And so like, um, and then I think about like Disney, Marvel, um, that sort of stuff and anime, you know, it's like, do they have any problem taking people's money? Like, no, like they just create the product, people fall in love with it and they throw their money at them. Right. And so I thought about like, okay, like now where's the opportunity here with the Web3 company? It's like, I realized the thing I don't like about Web2 um, brands like Disney or Marvel is that they don't actually care about their community in terms of like, um, they don't really love you, right? Like Zero. They say, it's consumer. It, their yes. community is consumerism. Exactly. Like it's, actually, it's actually more of a rug than if, <laughs> than if you could sell an NFT and then, and then, you know, never come into the community, but people are there talking in a Discord together. Right. There's actually more community in a Web3 really? <laughs> Discord than there is in Disneyland. You heard it here first. Oh, yeah. Disney is a rug per good month ETH on the Never Fade NFT podcast. I mean, look, it's true because what I what hit me really hard is I realized is like they only care about you while you're paying them money. Like, that's it. If you're not paying the money, you're not a customer. Therefore, they don't care about you. And then when they use community or they do like fan engagement stuff, it's just like servicing for them to make more money. And so I thought, okay, 
Web3 is different, though. Community matters, right? And I thought, what is the next level of a Disney or Marvel? You know what it is? It's when you pay the fans. It's like, what would make somebody even more loyal is if you created a Star Wars universe and you paid people to consume that shit, right? Like, right. that's and next you, level. And you like, pay people to be engaged. You pay people to yeah. share. You pay people to be right. an ambassador. You know how many Correct. people... You know how many people like love to talk in Star Wars, uh, like Chats. analogies. It yes. just like people coming over to the house and you have a drink and you're talking about the new Star Wars. And if if you go into a character with them, they want to go into that. That motherfucker right. needs to be paid, dude. That's that's what I'm saying. Is so I think the next level is when the fans get paid, and not only for consuming, but for to help build it right so it's like imagine if star wars uh, actually supported the fanfics that were made right or if harry potter like paid people to do fan like that's next level so when we talk about consumer loyalty it's like who is going to be more loyal a disney that just takes your money or a disney that pays you right yeah like which company are you going to live and die for right and so that's when i realized it's like it's really important to use Web3 values to destroy the Web2 model, right? Like to disrupt like the way that Netflix took down Blockbuster. We have to do the same thing. And so when we say something like, oh, we want to be the next Disney, people might say it's corny, but I'm going to push back moving forward and say like, no, like that. Why shouldn't we aspire to that? Like, why shouldn't we go yeah. for that as a goal? I, you know what I mean? hundred percent. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. Yeah. So with that in mind, Star Lordy, like, what kind of advice would you give to other builders in Web3 um, about kind of like managing community and and fostering brand loyalty? I mean, first of all, if you're a builder and you're not trying to build something like if you're going to call yourself a builder and you're not actually trying to build something for at least try for the long haul. Like, just fuck off. <laughs> That's the first thing I would say, you know? Yes. Like, somebody had asked me what's my favorite part of the bull market. I said immediately, without hesitation, is, like, all the shitty projects dying, you know? Like, seriously, like, fuck off. Like, all the people that sucked up liquidity with no intention of actually building something, uh, you know? Like, if you if you don't come with that intention, like, just seriously, like, fuck off. I don't give a fuck about you. Uh, pardon my foul language. Um, and then... Uh, but for everybody else, that's actually serious, which actually I think is most of the people that um, are left that I met in in NFT NYC and, and LA and all that stuff, the people who have the real dreams and aspirations, I would say um, number one advice is don't think of your community as a separate entity from yourself. Like that's one little mistake I'm seeing like with projects is like um, they they understand the value of community. But they think of a community as something to manage, right? Like as if it's like a separate entity. But if you think about your your community as like a vital organ, right? Like it's your heart, right? Or like your liver or something. It's like you would think about it differently, right? Like the value of taking care of it becomes more intrinsic to your survival, right? And then like listening to it becomes more important because if you don't listen to it, then you actually could die, you know what I mean? So it's like making your community like more family or more like I think of community as DNA for the project, right? Like like if you can make it that core level, it actually will change the way that you think, that the way that you communicate to them. 
and then um, it will also give you more insights on how to um, grow with them and to to take them as a value add. And so I would start there. And then, you know, again, it comes it comes down to a couple key things, which I said before is like, um, again, you have to know what your values are, which means, so I would say, start with your why, like, why are you here? Like, what is the vision you want? Like with my presentation to the new ownership group, um, I told them, I said, I don't just want to make IP and story. I want to change people's lives. Like I, I only want to work on businesses that are net positives on this humanity in this society. Like I think, you know, when you look at, um, like, you know, Star Wars, Spider-Man, it's like these values get given to people passively, right? Like you watch this character, you like their values, you take it in and it becomes part of your identity. But as the world is becoming more complex and there's more misinformation and there's more toxicity and stuff, it's like, as a company, we should have more intention of actually trying to make the world a better place, trying to improve people's lives with the so for instance, if you're playing a video game, maybe the villain represents anxiety. And then as you defeat that villain, you subtly get these skills that help you deal with anxiety in your own life, right? Like, we can actually code that into the to the 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 actual IP, right? Like, especially if you start combining AI technology, it's like, in the future, it's like, your story will know if you're depressed, or if you're anxious, or if you're acting erratically, you know, like, um, you know, and it could actually adjust the storyline to help you deal with that thing, or maybe be more sensitive to your situation, you know, and help you. So it's like, having actual intentions to change people's lives, um, is a why for us, right? Like, why are we here? It's not to tell stories, it's to change people's lives through stories, right? Um, so having a clear why is very important. And for, you know, anybody who's a founder trying to figure out how to formulate a why is like, just picture like, five, 10 years in the future, if you were to impact society, right? Like, how would your project impact the people that you serve? Right? That's your why. Then, once you have your why, then you have to have your values, which is like, how do you get there, right? Like every company has a set of values that's intrinsic to them. Those values actually end up determining your fate. For instance, I'll give you an example. Facebook, their first value was um, uh, move fast and break things, right? Which was a value of like, okay, we got to innovate. We got to rapidly change things. We got It's okay to make mistakes and break things. However, I think they ended up breaking things. <laughs> like you look at the impact of, of uh, politics because of Facebook, the mental health because of Instagram, they fucking broke things because that was their value. Like they didn't, like their motto wasn't make the world a better place. Their motto wasn't like, let's, let's help people have a better mental health or whatever it is, you know, like um, Google's first value was don't be evil, right? which helped them create the greatest, like, kind of free information search engine in history, right? Like, they got rid of the motto. <laughs> so you could, you could start debating, like, what is evil anyways. But the point is, like, your values literally determine the outcome of what you do. So if you can't articulate those values, you might end up going in directions that you're pulled that that aren't where you want to go. So it's important to know your values clearly. 
which brings me to the next point is that you want to communicate them clearly. It's like your community needs to know what your values are. They need to know what you stand for. When I first came into the project, I again, it was about being honest, transparent, and working hard. Like, the, the, it was very simple. And that's what we did. Like, the community saw us, our actions, living out, like, proving those values, like, every day. And that's the fourth thing is you want to make sure you deliver on what you say your values are, that your actions match your words. If you do that, your community will love you. They will run through brick walls for you. They will protect you from FUD. Um, you know, I'm very blessed with the community that I'm part of. Uh, I consider myself a servant to the community. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm and I'm lucky because my community has my back. Like, it, I've made mistakes, but even if some of them have called me out, they've never done it in a way that wasn't from the best intentions of the project of wanting to make me better as well. They've taught me so much. Um, if I was just talking at them or just treating them as like something that I don't want to deal with, then when I do make a mistake, then they're going to treat me differently. You know what I mean? So, and I think honestly, that is a reflection of the success of this project is that focusing on the core community and respecting them and making them happy first. It's like anybody that showed up to check on Oni Forest, they would only hear good things, right? Like they would hear like um, that we were authentic. So I think that's that's my advice for any founder of any project of any company. Like if you could get that right, it gives you the runway to figure out the business stuff, figure out the product stuff and all the other things that are difficult, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think what you articulated here is what people in this space really are looking for as like a North Star. And it is like the opposite of what's happened on the projects that have rugged. And you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's really bullish to hear that. I mean, just to understand better how you think as a builder, how you're looking at this project, the IP, and also the community, which you describe as like essentially like a vital organ uh, of the project, which is beautiful to hear, man. So with that, like I have to absolutely put you, Star Lordy, in the no fade zone. Hey, <laughs> let's, no fade go. let's go. No, this, dude, <laughs> there, you know, I, I truly hope a lot of people have the opportunity to listen to this episode because it's really eye opening. Um, especially considering like the the failures that this project originally went through, the the turnaround story, uh, where you stand now from a leadership's perspective and also from like a value perspective. So absolutely great content, man, to be frank. Um, with that, any kind of like departing words here for us today, bud? Man, this is a great conversation, dude. I really genuinely really appreciate it. I think you guys asked really great questions. You have a really authentic like perspective on like this space that I definitely vibe with. I think you you guys are good people, so I'm glad that that we got a chance to hook up. Um and yeah, I don't know. Like I guess the last thing I would say is like right now we're going through hard times. Um you look at the macroeconomic situation, everybody's suffering more. Everybody in the space is going through something in their own personal life. You know, I think the the saying before was like, be kind because you don't know what people are going through. Now I think it's like, be kind because everybody's going through some shit, right? Like just assume everybody's going, has something difficult in their life. Um, 
And you, you're seeing that with projects that are fumbling a little bit, um, that because people are suffering more, they're less forgiving. And also I see some communities are easier to attack each other. Like they're kind of enjoying seeing other people um, fail a little bit. Um, and so I just want to remind people that it's like, it's all one community still, you know, like we're, we're like really small, like this is a baby, like that we're trying to grow and we have to think of it as one community. Um, that's why I'm investing more time into joining other people's communities to learning how they move, um, supporting them, like reaching out to founders that are getting fudded. Um, maybe if I think it's not fair, like I want to reach out to them and just let them know that I'm like there to back them up if they need something. And um, I think we'll get through this together, um, but we'll appreciate the journey more when the bull market comes back if we know that we supported each other through those down times. Um, I think that's like my key message, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's like Lord of the Flies out here sometimes. Yo, you it's know? wild, dude. People like attacking wild. each other. But oh, hey, yeah. man, with that, really appreciate your time and input and allowing us to understand better how you think and how you're approaching Oni Forest. Uh, absolutely a pleasure. Uh, we'll definitely kind of like later in the year try to link up yes. uh, and, and revisit kind of where you've come, uh, what yes. other experiences you've come across and share that with our listeners. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Yo. That was ridiculous, Facts. Thoughts, one minute, rundown. I just really like the way that Star-Lordy is approaching Web3. I think his values are in the right place. I think his head is in the right place. And yo, this alpha about the ex-CFO of Binance and this $100 million Binance fund and the weight of these figures who are behind the scene like man i don't know that has a major impact what do you think about that yeah i mean honestly the history that they had versus where they're at today their collection is underneath they are binance's pet project right now that's that's the takeaway like binance has an nft project that they are investing in from a venture capital state and they're gonna fuck around and find out Specifically in the regulatory landscape, Binance is the only crypto exchange out there that has the appetite to take on this NFT space. Coinbase, they're more focused on adoption, L2, you know, KYC and the crypto, but Binance taking an interest in an NFT project is bullish. I'm going to buy for the history. I'm going to buy for the provenance. I'm not going to buy because I expect a return. I'm not going to buy to try to flip. I'm here for the story. I think Henry's background in art curation is bullish. I think his awareness of selling or exiting the company and bouncing but staying on because he has growth, that's that type of pressure cooker that you want a founder to go in to experience something that could give you life-changing opportunity as a holder. I'm in. Yo, good is back. Good is in. Look, I love what we heard today. Honestly, I really am happy that we had that conversation. Hopefully you guys enjoyed listening. Thank you so much. Follow us on Twitter at NeverFadeNFT. Subscribe to our YouTube comment. And if we see you in the comments, 
drop uh, your Twitter handle. We're going to be looking for people that we could add to some special uh, feedback groups that we're evaluating here for the community. So appreciate that. With that, that's another episode of Never Fade, the NFT podcast. To our producer, at Hazel B. Jordan, take us away. That's a bad bet if the bags check less. About to burn back to back, flipping that cheap when that Jenny Doug hits. That's the race to one, 250 in the world, and you chose to sleep. That's a bad bet if you wake up checklist. No more people without bags, but they need status. Running head first with the BB check thirst. Never heard of a hearse, but they connecting the dots.